This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Maria Nessel is a household name in the fields of nutrition, food studies, and public health. She devoted her career to educating the public about how the food industry influences our society and personal health. Serving as a Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, as well as a professor of sociology and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell University. Marion has authored six award-winning books about how politics shapes what we eat and has a forthcoming book titled Buying Nutrition Science, How Food Industry Sponsorship Skews Research and Harms Public Health that is scheduled to publish in the fall of 2018. Basically, if you're not impressed by Marion's expertise in the world of food politics, you should be. I had the honor of speaking with Marion and learning more about her take on the meat industry in the U.S. We discuss everything from the role of the meat lobby to how advertising influences what consumers consider healthy food. But this isn't just a conversation focused on the problems at hand. Marion also offers very practical advice for anyone who is fed up with government subsidies for cheap, unhealthy food. Being an expert in nutrition, she also debunks some myths about what is considered a healthy diet and sums up how to eat well in one sentence. If you're interested in learning more about how our complex food system is crafted by government policies and want to help change that, listen in. I'm here with Marion Nessel. Um, thank you, Marion, for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. So I want to start off with uh, something I know you've said before. You said that if you want to understand how people eat, you have to understand the politics of meat. And if you look at the current food system, it's dominated by industrial animal agriculture, which is heavily subsidized, um, an industry that's not only terrible for the environment, but also not so great for people's health. Um, so my question to you really is, what needs to happen so that people start choosing foods that are not only good for them, but also for the planet? 
Well, you're putting all of the responsibility for that on individuals to make those choices. Um, and if you're looking at individual food choices, then you have to look at education of individuals and um, the ability to pay for foods that are healthier and a lot of other things that affect individuals on a personal basis. If you're looking at policy, then you want to make policies that make healthier choices the easier choice so that people don't have to think about it or work so hard to make individual choices that are better for themselves. Yeah. And if you look at, uh, say, in the U.S., for example, majority of our food subsidies tend to go heavily to foods, um, especially animal-based foods and other commodity crops that we know are um, not what the, even the USDA necessarily recommends we we fill our plates with when we sit down to eat. So what what do you think is going on there? Why is it that we can develop an agricultural policy that's aligned with the interests of people's health? Um, and how do we change that? Well, the answer is I can do it in one word. It's called lobbying. <laughs> um, the big agriculture and the animal agriculture industry lobbies Congress to make sure that they have very favorable um, – they receive very favorable legislation and subsidies from Congress. Um, every state has um, – cattle growing in it, every single one, and every state has two senators, and the cattle growers in every state make sure that their senators and representatives understand that they're a big part of the economy of the state, and they're responsible for jobs, and they're responsible for lots of other things that people really care about. Um, and so when they go to their congressmen and senators and come equipped with campaign donations and the other ways in which our political system works. They get what they want. Uh, the Department of Agriculture is a very complicated organization where most of it is uh, by law and by history aimed at promoting industrial agriculture production. A very, very small part of the Department of Agriculture is concerned about food for people. Most agriculture in America, plant agriculture and therefore animal agriculture, is aimed at feed for animals. Corn and soybeans, most are fed for animals, or food or fuel for automobiles. Corn is grown for ethanol. A very, very small part of American food production is aimed at food for people. Now, it seems logical that that ought to change, but for that to change, politics has to change. And, and what do you think is going to help make that happen? Do you think uh, an industry that starts to... Um succeed when it comes to healthier foods that are not reliant on commodity crops can potentially move the needle in that direction? Or are the subsidies and the government's focus right now even preventing smaller uh, farmers as well as, um, say, food startups that are looking to get into this space from, from succeeding and reaching the consumer base that they're looking for? 
Well, the government isn't helping these mm-hmm. organizations. It's not necessarily impeding them either. But many, many, many startup food companies are doing quite well, appealing to the class of consumers who are concerned about uh, foods being healthier for people and the environment. And these have had an enormous impact. And some of that impact is now hitting very large industrial food companies who find that they're having trouble selling products that aren't healthy. Um, And if they cannot justify the kinds of supply chains that they have, the, the consumers aren't buying them to the same extent. And a lot of big companies are having a lot of trouble now. Um, selling products that have been part of their repertoire for a very, very long time because there's a big percentage of or growing percentage of consumers who want foods that are healthier for people on the planet and are willing to pay for them. Yeah. So if you look at, you know, we spoke about industrial meat, that's a great example. It's, um, you know, it's terrible for the environment, bad for future generations. What are your thoughts on I'd love to get your thoughts on innovations in, say, the plant protein space. Um, you probably have read a lot of new startups like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat have been developing the next generation of meat substitutes uh, that replicate meat in, in and almost in a very similar way and taste good, have the same texture, and they're slowly bringing the cost down as well to make it accessible to people. Do you think that this can help given people still want to eat meat? Um, can it can it start move, moving the needle in terms of people choosing something healthier that potentially involve less of the environmental destruction typically associated with animal foods? Yeah, well, I mean, in a sense, you've answered your own questions. The, <laughs> these uh, um, these innovations are quite popular. They're doing really well. They have investors. Um, they're expanding. They're opening up factories. They're doing all kinds of things. And for people who don't want to eat meat, um, they are a reasonable substitute. I've tasted them. They taste fine. Um, you know, I... It's my own feeling is these are artificial. I don't like artificial anything. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm much more interested in is the effort to try to grow meat more sustainably. And those efforts are um, also doing quite well. But all of these things are at the moment at a price point that separates our food system into two classes. We have people who are interested and can afford foods that are healthier and people who uh, may not be as interested or able to get them or afford foods that um, would be healthier for them and for their families. We, you know, and this goes along with income inequality and all the other inequalities in our society. And almost everybody that I know who's working in the food movement is working to try to bridge these inequalities and make sure that everybody has access to healthier food. Yeah, I think about like 23.5 million Americans don't have are live in food deserts where they don't have access to fresh produce and healthy foods, uh, which I think is alarming uh, considering we produce so much food. Um, so to the point that you mentioned about producing meat most sustainably, do you think that is something we can reasonably encourage or promote without also telling people that they need to cut down on meat consumption because of the land resources required to be able to produce meat that's, I'm assuming, grass-fed, pasture-raised. 
Um, how do you think, how do you reconcile those two, um, th- th- those issues? Well, I think a lot of things are going on at once. And yeah. we live in a pluralistic society and we have a pluralistic food system. Um, and the again, a lot of this is a function of taste, availability, and money. Um, I am. I was just reading something today about the lawsuit that's taking place in South Dakota. Um, Beef Products International is suing ABC News in South Dakota over uh, over the South using South Dakota's food disparagement laws. Uh, to sue ABC News for saying disparaging things about lean, finely textured beef, which they referred to as pink slime, which Mm -hmm. is an ingredient that was put into school lunch um, meat and other kinds of lunch meats. And it's um, aesthetically kind of horrible to think about, although the company argues that it's safe and I don't have any argument with that. Mm-hmm. It's just um, not meat. It's a meat product or a meat byproduct or it's the trimmings that are put into this stuff. But what what's amazing to me about this lawsuit is that it's taking place at a time when this uh, – ingredient is coming back into the food supply and it's coming back into the food supply because it's really cheap mm-hmm. and you can add it to hamburger meat and charge very little for the hamburger meat because it's like a filler of some kind um, and what we care about in this country is cheap food and well, for people who don't have any money it's wonderful that we have cheap food but it would be, it would be better if we could all focus on quality yeah, it would be great if the cheap food was also the right food. Uh, I think the problem now is that majority of uh, U.S. consumer grocery carts are filled with processed foods or um, industrially produced um, meat and dairy that isn't really helping. And you know, the fact that those are the things that are more easily available to people um, is part of the problem. I also think you know, talking about. Say, so let me just interject, if sure. I may, that they're also the most heavily advertised. Mm-hmm. So if you're somebody who's a consumer of media, you're going to know about these foods, you're going to think these foods are good for you, and you're going to think these foods are what you're supposed to be eating. Yeah. And how do you think efforts to get consumers, for example, given that advertising is so powerful, subsidies say, play such a big role in terms of price of foods available in grocery stores, do you think efforts to encourage people to cut back on processed foods or meat um, are, are something that could happen in the near future? I know you've been working on this, even I think as back as 1977, there were some attempts to um, encourage people to reduce meat consumption in one of the reports called the Dietary Goals of the U.S. for the U.S., um, which the obviously the, the meat industry lobbied against and, and changed the language um, What's your experience been in the last 40 years around this issue? Well, the meat, uh, I'll go back to the basic fact. The basic yeah. fact is that cattle are raised in every state in the union, and every state has two senators. That's the explanation for why the meat industry gets treated in this very special way. And also, Americans like meat. 
Um, people like, actually, people everywhere in the world like to eat meat. If given the chance and if given the, and, and they have enough money, that's the first thing that they're going to buy with their food dollars. So given that that's a basic human like yeah. for, for meat and excluding meat is something that's been done on religious grounds or uh, or ethical grounds or religious grounds or other kinds, you know, for various reasons throughout history, there have been human societies that have stopped eating meat. There are still plenty of people who want to eat meat. The question is, can they eat meat in a way that forces the industry to produce meat more sustainably? Mm -hmm. And remember, you need animals in order to fertilize land on which to grow plants. I mean, that if you have an ecological system, animals are part of that ecological system. Um, and we have changed that ecological system and changed it into an industrial system. And it's that that really has caused the problems. Uh, for people who live on balanced farms, where there are you know, a small number of animals, and um, those farms work pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and and can we and the question is can those farms and that kind of much kinder to people in the environment farming produce enough food to feed the world and at the moment the answer is yes because in the United States at least we produce twice the amount of food that we need you know thereby making sure that vast amounts of food are wasted we wouldn't we don't have to produce that much if we produce it more carefully yeah. If you look uh, but, at, sorry, just go ahead. One other, one other thing, just before I forget, I mean, one of the goals of a Department of Agriculture is to make sure that everybody has enough to eat so that you don't have people starving in the streets. Mm -hmm. And we have a food system that has built into it an enormous capacity for waste. And even so, that food doesn't get often to the people who need it the most. Right. That's unfortunate. I mean, let's let's take a look at the big picture or the global picture, for example. I mean, we're going to be 9.7 billion people on this planet by 2050. And meat consumption, as you know, is skyrocketing in countries like China and India as their middle classes get access, you know, rising incomes, access to to food and access to more expensive food. Um, the problem we face now is given the rise in population is that we're going to have to produce more food, I believe, in the next 40 years than has been produced in the last 10,000 year, years combined. How do you think we can sort of achieve this without pushing the Earth's resources to its brink? And um, I guess the question here is, would things like, um, and I'm sure you've noticed developments in um, in some new food tech startups that are focused on cellular agriculture, for example, or developing what they call clean meat or lab-grown meat, for lack of a better word. And some of them claim to have a product that will be hitting the market in the year 2020 and claim that they will be, of this, will be price equal to anything made from a factory farm in maybe 10 years. Do you think that could play a role? Um, of course it can. Yeah, of course that can play a role. It'll play a role with the segment of the population that's interested in eating that kind of food and can afford it. Uh, even if the price is low, there may still be social or cultural 
um, aspects of it that make people not want to eat it. I mean, people have there are lots of reasons why people make food choices. Um, I think it will have a market. It already has a market. It's already being sold at restaurants and selling out all the time, and people are very, very interested in this. Um, so I think, of course, there's a market for it. Uh, how this problem is going to be solved is one that's absolutely going to require focusing on sustainability. Um, what gets taken out of land has to be put back into land. What gets used, even the um, indoor-grown Vertical farming of vegetables requires an enormous amount of energy. That energy will have to be replaced. Um, but there are people who are working on these things all the time, and I think they're very in interesting innovations going on. Um, but the easiest way to have people grow food is to grow it and grow it sustainably. And it's not that hard to do. Yeah. And from a consumer's perspective, I mean, for someone who's listening and is trying to wrap their head around these big problems, bombarded by advertising, no matter where they turn um, and struggle. And, you know, at the same time, you have health experts that one day are telling you that eating gluten free is good. High fat is good. Low carb is good. Or, or possibly eating raw vegan is good. People seem to be largely confused. Would you what are some basic rules you would tell anyone if they're trying to make healthier, most sustainable food choices? Oh, you just follow um, Michael Pollan's rules. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Oh, that's so I mean, simple. Really, really, it's not really it's not any more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, I like uh, to take that a bit a step further. Would you agree that if you tell people that you should eat um, whole plant-based foods um, more often and replace uh, processed foods with uh, healthier options that are available and moderate your meat consumption? Would that fit within the, your, your broad advice? Yeah, that fits fine. Um, you know, you want to focus the eat food part of um, his advice means eat real food, not processed foods. Um, the not too much means balance calorie intake with expenditure. Don't eat too much. Um, and the mostly plants means mostly plants. It doesn't mean exclusively plants. Right. It means mostly plants. And remember, 70 percent, I'm, I'm not sure exactly of that percentage, but 70 percent of American agriculture is grown for animal feed. Mm -hmm. Or these days, uh, you know, 40 percent of American corn, this figure I do know, 40 percent of Americans, America's corn is going to ethanol for cars. That's crazy. Wow. So we need food for people. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, exactly. You know the department. What the Department of Agriculture refers to as specialty foods. Yeah, and I think it goes back to your point earlier about the role that advertising plays in all of this. We can't forget that and how powerful that is. Uh, this obsession over protein, for example, as if um, as if nutritional deficiencies is something that is a cause for concern in in this country, especially. Well, it's the silliest thing I ever heard because um, it's almost impossible if you're eating enough calories, unless you're eating a diet that is based on sugar. It's almost impossible to have a diet that doesn't produce enough, that doesn't give you enough protein. And most Americans eat twice the protein they need. That's wasteful. Right. And protein's available in all foods, so it isn't something you need oh, to. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Obsess over. Um, also, another something interesting that's been in the news, and I'm, I'm sure you've uh, you've been following it closely too, is is the milk industry's focus on um, and fight around labeling. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that before we we kind of wrap up this conversation. Do you think their fight to crack down on um, companies on almond milk, yeah, on companies <laughs> that are selling plant based beverages right. that are labeled milk? Do you think it's it's a worthy or a worthless fight? Well, let's go back to the basic political principle here. Every state has dairy cattle. Every state has two senators. <laughs> so the dairy industry is very powerful. It would like to be more powerful um, and would like everybody drinking milk. But milk is not an essential nutrient. It's perfectly possible to have a decent diet, a perfectly healthy diet, without drinking milk or eating dairy products at all. Um, if you like dairy products, I think they're fine. If you don't, you don't have to eat them. Um, and the dairy industry's um, purpose in life is to get people to eat more dairy products. Um, so if you look at it from that standpoint, there must they must be quite concerned about the competition from almond and other kinds of milks. Uh, they do not have the same nutritional value, but you can get the same nutrients that you get from dairy products from other foods. So that's not really a problem. So you suspect that they will not prevail in that fight? Is that? I don't know. Yeah. And I've, it's a political fight. It's hard to know these days. And I've heard that starting to bleed over into other areas. The the rice board seems to be upset about the use of the word cauliflower rice. And I've heard in Europe, for example, there's some talks about the meat industry upset about plant-based meat substitutes or fake bacon as being labeled as meat. Bacon as being bacon and, and sold in the meat cat. Corners. Yeah, this is about market share. Yeah. Now, remember, we have twice the amount of food in America as the population needs. This means that the food industry is extraordinarily competitive and that they are just killing each other for market share. So the meat industry is defending its turf. The dairy industry is defending its turf. And they will do anything they possibly can to make sure that that other kinds of products don't uh, edge into their market share. That's what it's about. This isn't about health. It's about market share. Right. And I think, you know, to end on a, on a bit of a positive note, one good thing I have noticed in the past um, couple of years is I think the the meat industry specifically, and perhaps even the dairy industry, is starting to wake up to the idea that they're the way of they produce their end products are uh, unsustainable and are also starting to have um, negative health consequences for people and people are waking up to that fact. So Tyson, for example, um, has invested in Beyond Meat, a company that makes plant-based meat. And uh, Cargill seems to be suggesting that they're also interested in the alternatives protein market. And it seems like the industry is starting to understand that what they're in the business of is um, is broadly protein, as they put it. And it kind of doesn't matter if that comes from um, an animal that was slaughtered or if it comes from plants or potentially it comes from a laboratory. So uh, hopefully that's a sign that the industry will start stop fighting the, the startups or um, alternatives that are now finding uh, their way into grocery carts and perhaps embracing them. Yeah, well, the purpose of the, of a food company is to make money, and they really don't care how they do it. 
Also, I guess in the end, capitalism wins, right? So, uh, so it so it seems. So as long as we can educate people to hopefully make the right choices, and that creates enough demand, perhaps we can then change the industry from the inside out. And who knows, we can get some of those senators yeah. to to change policies eventually. And that's certainly a good way to do it. But then we also have to look at the greater structure of the way these kinds of things are done and try to change policy so that it'll be easier to do these things. Well, that's a great note to end with. So thank you so much, Marion. I appreciate your time today and your, yeah, my pleasure. And your great insights. Um, we look forward to chatting with you again soon. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.